In the fall of 1965, Hazel Belford Glab Stoddard, a tiny, well-dressed woman with graying hair and a defiant attitude, entered a Los Angeles courthouse, a space she was intimately familiar with. The clack of high spikes on her smart two-tone shoes sent echoes vibrating along corridors, wrote a reporter for the Los Angeles Times. Hazel was there because of a feud with a former friend, whom she claimed had taken papers which were precious to her. When asked what they were, Hazel explained that they were writings she hoped to include in, quote, a book about the people in my life, unquote. The proposed tell-all, which never came to light, was one many 20th century Angelinos would have loved to read. I'm Hadley Mears, and welcome to the second season of Underbelly L.A., the podcast that looks past the glitz of Hollywood and into the shadows and crevasses of L.A.'s past, where many of the best stories about this city are hiding, waiting to be shared. Through my work as a historical journalist, I've uncovered tales of murder, deceit, and straight-up shadiness. On season two, I hope to shine a light on the city of noir and shadows, and I want to do that by highlighting some of the criminal masterminds, and I use that word very loosely, that captivated a city with a very short attention span during the 1920s and 30s. According to census records, Hazel was born in the Oklahoma Territory in 1894 to Sue and John Belford. A pretty, innocent-looking child, Hazel claimed to have been mentored by the cowboys and train robbers of the Old West, and she would live her life in many ways like a modern-day murderous cowgirl. By 1910, she was 16, orphaned and living in Kansas with her extended family. Beautiful, childlike, and blonde, Hazel dreamed of becoming an actress. In 1912, she had a small role in the Thomas Inns-directed silent western, The Deserter. According to Hollywood historian Mary Mallory, on her blog, L.A. Daily Mirror, Hazel married a salesman and then a taxi driver. (laughs) Both marriages were short-lived. By the early 1920s, Hazel had landed in crime-bitten Chicago, right where she should have been. Though she appeared to be a good-time, glamorous flapper, Hazel was in reality a hard-edged bootlegger, cavorting in the dangerous underworld of prohibition. Like many 20th century desperados, Hazel flitted from one city to the next, dancing professionally for a time with Philip Ainsworth, the former husband of the tragic screen goddess Barbara Lamar. In 1925, she met Chicagoan John I. Glab, a supposedly upstanding druggist, who was also very much married and who owned a pharmacy across from the Cook County Hospital. According to Hazel, Glab also ran a successful bootlegging business. The two began an on-again, off-again affair, even as Hazel carried on with a Los Angeles police officer named William R. McIntyre. Perhaps in pursuit of McIntyre, In 1925, Hazel moved across the country to boomtime Los Angeles. She moved in for a bit with McIntyre before leaving him to live with John Glab, who had also decamped to Los Angeles in pursuit of Hazel, 
Not surprisingly, he didn't bring his wife. This strange love triangle's descent onto the City of Angels would be anything but quiet and peaceful. Hazel quickly made herself known to both the L.A. underworld and the LAPD, although in the 1920s, it was sometimes hard to tell the difference. In 1925, she was accused, but not convicted, of orchestrating the holdup of a friend. In 1927, during a raucous party, she shot boyfriend William McIntyre during a fight over her relationship with her other boyfriend, John Glab. McIntyre received a flesh wound to the neck and lost his job with the LAPD, but he refused to press charges against his lady love. This show of loyalty was not rewarded. In early 1928, Hazel finally made her choice and married the wealthy and newly single John Glab in Reno, Nevada. The couple bought a large Spanish-style home at 12744 Ventura Boulevard in the brand-new semi-rural bedroom community of Studio City. Hazel was now the lady of a fine estate, situated high on a hill, with servants' cottages and lush grounds far from the pollution and lights of the crowded cities she had long stalked. According to the Los Angeles Times, she, quote, entertained lavishly for many in the motion picture colony, unquote, She also shopped prodigiously. But Hazel's happy high life would be shockingly short-lived. On the foggy evening of June 18, 1928, Hazel went to visit her former lover, William McIntyre, at his apartment for, quote, a few drinks and to chat, unquote, according to testimony. She then shopped at a Japanese market with her doe-eyed teenage niece, Ethel Kayser, who was visiting from Oklahoma City. When they returned home, Hazel did not park her sedan in the garage, as was custom. Instead, she parked 70 feet away from her driveway on a small Studio City side street. A little after 9 p.m., a shot rang out in the quiet, upscale neighborhood. A man's voice began to cry for help. A neighbor named Mrs. Goodrich ran to her window. As soon as I reached my window, I heard a door in the sedan slammed and saw a woman running along the wire fence. Mrs. Goodrich told police. She turned into the glab gate, and a second later, I heard her house door slam shut. Neighbors and the glab servants rushed to the sedan. There, they found John I. Glab, sprawled half in and half out of his car, a bullet in his chest. He died while being rushed to the Van Nuys Hospital. He was murmuring the name Martha, the wife he had left for Hazel. Police and emergency personnel descended on the quiet neighborhood. In the confusion, around 15 minutes after the shooting, a neighbor saw a man enter a car several hundred yards away on a nearby avenue and quickly drive away. He was unable to get a license number. The police, immediately suspicious of Hazel, brought Hazel and Ethel in for questioning. Acting hysterical but resolute, 
Hazel declared that she had sent her husband out to buy cigarettes and that neither she nor her niece had heard the shot. Questioned all night, Ethel backed up most of Hazel's tale, but claimed they had heard the commotion outside. The L.A. Times reported, We were sitting at the table near the end of the living room divan playing pinochle when the shot was fired, Miss Kayser told the LAPD. What is that? I said to Anne Hazel, and jumped up to run to the window at the rear of the living room. Sit down. Don't run up there and make a target of yourself, she told me. So I returned to my place at the table. Hazel blamed John for his own death, claiming that his criminal activities had caught up with him. I believe my husband was slain by Chicago gunmen, she told the LAPD whose enmity he incurred while he was engaged in illicit liquor traffic in that city. However, those who knew the Glabs believed otherwise. Mr. and Mrs. Wilson, the Glabs live in help, asserted that the five-month-old marriage was already disintegrating. Mrs. Wilson claimed to have heard Hazel shout, I'll kill you, during one particularly vicious argument. Monday morning, he came out into the yard and told me she was getting too high-toned for him, Mrs. Wilson told police, and that he guessed he would return to Nevada where he had mining interest. She also revealed that Hazel had a small, light-colored gun of the same thirty-two caliber which had killed Glab. Although the gun was nowhere to be found, the police were satisfied that hard-bitten Hazel was their killer. On June 21st, Hazel and Ethel who was suspected of being Hazel's right-hand girl, were charged with the murder. The story, featuring two photogenic, conventionally beautiful young women, became a national sensation. Articles delved into the twisted life of the Oklahoma two-gun girl, and every move Hazel made was followed by the press. The Los Angeles Times reported on a visit Hazel made to her Ventura Boulevard house before being sent to the city jail. Mrs. Glab was particular to obtain several changes of clothing for herself when she visited the home, but she failed to take anything for her youthful niece, who was in the juvenile hall and jointly charged with the murder. The two prize-winning chow dogs, which Mrs. Glab exhibited so much worry over, will be taken to a downtown dog boarding house to be cared for. However, without a murder weapon, eyewitnesses, or confession, the case quickly disintegrated and police realized they would never be able to secure a conviction. Hazel and Ethel were released on June 27th, and all charges were dropped. I knew we would be freed without having to stand trial, Hazel told the press triumphantly. The charge was ridiculous in the first place. I had no reason to kill my husband. Hazel stayed in the news, fighting numerous court battles with Glab's former wife, Martha, over his estate. It seems, though, she ended up with a substantial portion of his fortune, including the Ventura Boulevard home. She also jumped right back into her shadowy life and began a relationship with a man named Herbert Frizzell. According to later court testimony, partying with the gun-toting Hazel could be injurious to one's health. The Los Angeles Times reported, Floyd Oden, the private detective, told of a party which he attended in the home of a friend sometime after Glab was shot to death, when Mrs. Glab assertedly attempted to shoot Herb Frizzell, her escort. I've killed one man and I'm about to kill another, the woman said, according to Odin's testimony. 
After Odin had disarmed her, Mrs. Glab ran to a chair and seized another revolver, which was hidden beneath the cushion, according to testimony, and this weapon too was taken from her. Then Mrs. Glab, who during the disturbance had broken a vase on the head of Frizzell, kicked out the screen from a front window, removed a fur coat, threw it out onto the lawn, and stood nude before the group except for stockings and slippers, the witnesses testified. According to testimony, the party adjourned immediately after this disturbance. Hazel and Frizzell weren't done abusing each other. On Christmas morning, 1928, police discovered Hazel and Frizzell in a driveway, quote, beating each other over the head with loaded revolvers, unquote. Both were bleeding. Frizzell was charged with drunkenness, but Hazel got off scot-free. She continued her destructive, hard-partying, violent ways. Although often away, she hired a bodyguard to live in the servants' quarters of the Ventura Boulevard house, even though the main house was said to be practically devoid of furnishings. In 1930, the John Glad murder case was reopened when a new witness came forward and claimed to have seen a blonde woman running from the death car. Hazel seems to have been unfazed, getting in another free-for-all fight at an all-night party. By 1931, she was going by the name of Miss Sue Bell and getting a black eye breaking up a fight between a couple during yet another suspicious soiree. By 1934, Hazel was destitute, forced to sell this Studio City home and living with a fellow wild child, Thelma Dabney, who was suspected of narcotic use by the police. Desperate for cash and luxury, Hazel was ready to pull her next big matrimonial con and turn to her friends in the underworld for help. According to Dabney, per the Los Angeles Times, Mrs. Glab announced she was about to meet downtown a man named Rosie, who would introduce her to a millionaire. I went downtown with Mrs. Glab, and we met Rosie, and also Fred Steger, a friend of Mrs. Glab. Mr. Steger told Rosie that Mrs. Glab was a clever girl, just the type to handle Cheney. The Cheney in question was Albert L. Cheney, a retiree who'd made millions as a manufacturer, but who also had a bad drinking problem and few friends. Hazel soon seduced him, moved in with him, and quickly convinced, or forced, who knows, him to marry her. On March 12, 1935, the two went to Las Vegas to be wed. In a plot twist that strains credulity, Cheney actually died from an alleged heart attack the night before the wedding, thwarting Hazel's plans. But Hazel was not ready to lose out on her fiancé's substantial fortune. According to court documents, the day after Cheney's funeral, Fred Steger drove Mrs. Glab to a stationer's store, where she bought some ink and an ink eradicator, advising Steger that she wanted to do something with a paper in her possession with Cheney's signature upon it. In fact, in December 1934, she had told Steger that she had Cheney's signature upon a piece of paper, blank, except for some numerals on the left-hand side. Mrs. Glab wrote a will on the sheet of paper above Cheney's signature, and the two Stegers then signed it as witnesses. The purported will, written in bright purple ink on hotel stationery, 
the numbers clumsily erased, read in part, All my property, personal belongings, and insurance policies go to my future wife, Hazel Belford, and I do make her exetrix without bond. Not surprisingly, Cheney's daughter immediately challenged the will in court. The news media was titillated, and all the L.A. papers clamored for an interview. Legendary newspaper editor Aggie Underwood, then a reporter for the Herald Express, got to Hazel first. Tough as nails Aggie, with her disheveled appearance and, quote, a voice that would only seduce a foghorn, unquote, was in the process of becoming an L.A. legend. She kept a baseball bat on her desk to keep order in the newsroom. She also had a starter pistol tucked inside a drawer, which she would shoot when the office got too quiet. During the 1930s, Underwood became especially known for her coverage of the sensational murders of the time. Favorite occupation is following a good murder, her editor joked. Favorite story, a good murder. Favorite photograph, a good murder. Favorite fate for all editors, a good murder. A master at getting suspects to trust her, Underwood convinced Hazel to give her an exclusive interview, and the two fled in Underwood's car from the rival reporters who were hot on their tail. In her autobiography, Newspaper Woman, Underwood remembered, She seemed to enjoy the game of cops and robbers that followed. As one reporter overtook us near 8th and Catalina Streets, where we had gone for her to return a borrowed automobile. She loyally beat him up for the rolled-up newspaper, jumped into the waiting Herald Express car, and resumed with me the flight I had instigated for the Herald Express. The two eventually ended up at Underwood's home, where her daughter's Girl Scout troop had gathered for a meeting. When we arrived there, 40 little Girl Scouts had foregathered with food they had brought from their homes, Underwood wrote. Hazel, it was Hazel and Aggie by then, pitched in and cheerfully helped serve dinner. The kids liked the well-dressed woman who was so kindly. The two women later went to another safe house, where they got drunk with other members of the Herald Express staff. But Underwood couldn't help Hazel out of the mess she had created. Hazel had overplayed her hand. During a dramatic trial, which included the near-fatal beating of Thelma Dabney by an unknown pro-Hazel assailant. It was proved beyond a shadow of a doubt that Hazel had forged the Cheney will. She was convicted in December of 1935. But Hazel had bigger things to worry about. Spurred on by the forgery trial, in the fall of 1935, the LAPD quietly reopened the unsolved murder of John Glab. On January 12, 1936, flush with new witnesses, they again charged Hazel with his 1928 murder. The trial was a sensation. The DA presented a new theory, that her niece Ethel had lured Glab out of the house, telling him Hazel wanted to speak with him outside. Hazel, lying in wait in the car, shot John Glab and then sprinted to the family garage, where she hid the gun in a secret compartment in one of the couple's large automobiles. Numerous witnesses came forward, including one who claimed Hazel had offered him $500 to bump off that husband of mine. Mrs. Goodrich, the neighbor in Studio City, testified hearing high-heeled shoes which went, quote, clickety-clack, unquote, down the street in the moments before and after the murder. 
Even a spiritualist who had met with Hazel before her marriage to John Glab took the stand. I told Hazel that there were lots of dark clouds hovering over her, and that a dark man was coming from a journey, she told the court. I asked her if she knew the man, and she said yes, and I'm going to get him before he gets me. Private Eye Ogden also repeated that after Glab's death, he had heard Hazel shout, I've killed one man and I'm about to kill another, at her lover Frizzell during a fight at a party. Hazel held fast to her innocence, placing the blame on her old flame William McIntyre, who she visited the night of the murder. I did not kill my husband, she testified. W.R. McIntyre killed him. The police told me that during the original investigation. Tellingly, Hazel's niece Ethel, the one person who may have saved her, refused to come from Oklahoma City to testify on her behalf. After a 24-hour deliberation, the jury convicted Hazel of second-degree murder. In April 1936, she started on her journey to the Tehachapi Women's Prison to serve her sentence of seven years to life. According to Aggie Underwood, a newspaper woman, a gay Hazel waving cheerful farewells beamed for newspaper photographers as she was taken to a waiting car in Los Angeles, holding tightly to a detective magazine. Don't say I cried or carried on, she told Underwood, because I'll be back. Remarkably, Hazel was back in a relatively short time. Secretly paroled in 1941, she immediately went back to her brazen ways. Prison didn't break Hazel Glab, Underwood wrote in Over her remaining decades, Hazel was arrested for pandering, threatening former friends' lives, and accused of sleeping with a policeman on the night of his wedding. She married at least two more times and popped up periodically in the press. Although she got her papers back in 1965, her autobiography was never published. Hazel died on September 9, 1977. Hazel had lived her life as a Wild West desperado a deceptively sunny blonde who eventually disappeared into the ample shade supplied in the City of Angels. Thanks for joining us on this episode of Underbelly LA. This episode is based on Meet Hazel Glab, the murderous media darling of the 1930s, first published in LAist. Check it out. I'm Hadley Mears, and you can follow me on Twitter at H-A-D-L-E-Y-M-E-A-R-E-S. You can follow Underbelly LA at Underbelly LA. We're also on Facebook. Just search Underbelly LA. Listen to all future episodes of this podcast by going to underbellyla.com. And you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, and anywhere else you'd normally find a podcast. Every episode of this show is researched, written, and read by me, Adley Mears. The show is produced by Drew Mackey and 
edited by Mika Grimm. Underbelly LA is a Table Cakes podcast. Table Cakes is a Los Angeles-based, woman-owned podcast company. And if you want to learn about other shows on this network, go to tablecakes.com. If you want to support Underbelly LA, check out our digital tip jar at patreon.com slash underbellyla. Join us next week when we delve into more murder, mayhem, shade, and sunshine in the city of angels. A Table Cakes production. <laughs>